You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome back to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with Dr Mick Pope. Uh, a little while ago, I got asked a question as whether or not Psalm 46 would be a good psalm for eco-theological reflection. That is, are the things that we can take from it that we can apply to our current context? And at the time I thought an intriguing question, and I went and had a, a little bit of a look at the Hebrew. I only use an online interlinear, as I may have said before, so I'm no great shakes of a Hebrew scholar just yet, and trying to tease apart what that psalm was actually saying first, which is... Um, in keeping with a principle I've talked about before in this podcast, which is the Bible is written for us, but not to us. And so there's a two-part process. There's exegesis, that is teasing apart what the passage actually has to say, and then hermeneutics and getting to think about how we might apply it to the present without necessarily doing too much violence to the text. Although, as I may have alluded in other programs, when you start reading people like Peter Enns, they point out that the New Testament writers do some quite imaginative things with the what we would call the, the Old Testament, or the, more properly, perhaps the Hebrew Bible. And then I thought I had this program all sorted um, in my head, and then flicked at my notes later yesterday, as it were, because it's um, early Tuesday morning now, and found I hadn't. So this is fresh off the presses, if you will, me thinking about what it might be involved. So firstly, let me read the psalm to you in the NRSV. And this may be very well familiar to you. It's, it's made its way into music many times. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city, it shall not be moved. God will help it when the morning dawns. The nations are in uproar, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. Come behold the works of the Lord, see what desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. So you can see why this might be picked up as um, something that has eco-theological themes. It talks about uh, the mountain shaking in the heart of the sea, and so you can probably hear echoes or pick up on ideas of sea level rise which as you might very well be aware is a key aspect or a key impact 
of global warming, of climate change. So as the oceans warm up, they expand and sea level increases. And of course, ice sheets and glaciers, as they melt and they slide into the ocean, sea level will rise. And it could rise by of order a couple of metres by the end of the century. And so that will impact a huge number of people. So it, it seems to be a a psalm that's right for this reflection. But before we rush to that, it's worth thinking about about this. I'm reminded of uh, a conversation with somebody, it was Anglican clergy, as it, it turned out, and I think it was the wording of, um, might have been a baptism uh, service, and I, I queried him, because there's an old phrase um, in, in the prayer book, and it, it talks about, you know, well, it, it, you're answering promises uh, to God, or making promises to God, and there's a phrase that says, I will do so with the strength that God provides. And he had a quibble with the word strength. And you know, upon reflection, I, I get it more than perhaps I did at the time, and that strength is often seen in an abusive, um, a patriarchal, a, a hyper-masculine kind of way. But our psalm begins with, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So strength here is very much tied to, to help. And it's interesting because the word here is the feminine form. And it's kind of a bit ironic in a sense when I think more about it. But it's the feminine form of the word used of the woman, Eve, in, in Genesis 2, where it's used in the masculine, what has the masculine form. And so it's straight off the page. And I, I know this is jumping ahead a little bit in, in a sense, but it's reflection back on the the command to serve and keep the garden in Genesis 2.15, that it's a task of partnership. And when God muses about a suitable helper for the man is created, then that's not a, a secondary kind of role. It's not an inherently in of itself a submissive role or a lesser of a role. Because how can God be lesser as a help uh, as our refuge and strength in times of trouble. So that's just worth teasing out about the broad way in which help is, is thought of. It's it's something that we need, and particularly in this ecological crisis, you might argue that you know, well, we really do need help, and, and some Christians will look to help from God, and then you'll obviously hear plenty from outside the church saying, well, the help's not coming from anywhere, it's, it's all on us. Uh, for the Christian, that's inadequate, but as I'll touch upon later, I think it's also inadequate to say, oh, we just expect God to, to lift us out of the, the problem that we ourselves have created uh, in a very simple and straightforward fashion, and it's just not that simple. The The thing that I find very interesting about this psalm is that it's the language of the flood story. And people, of course, in the church will turn to the flood story and say, look, God promised that the seasons will happen in their turn, and so therefore, any talk about sea level rise, any talk about climate change is totally misplaced because God definitely promised in that text, in in literalistic terms, that the, the seasons wouldn't be tipped up again, the earth wouldn't be flooded. Now, you, there are various problems we might have with that in terms of a very bold literalism and not, and you know, saying something's historical when there's no evidence that it was and overlooking the the theological import or the theological significance of the story. 
but it seems to me that that even if you took it on face value and and there's a certain to extent to which we of course we're meant to do that but flood story language is used throughout the hebrew bible again and again and it's, it's being used here um so therefore we will not fear this is verse 2 though the earth should be changed or caused to be changed more properly or some translations read removed and the mountains shake in the heart or the midst of the sea and so it's this idea from the flood narrative that the waters went over the top of the sea and so the mountains are being shaken by by the waters now the hebrew for sea is the word yam and yam is viewed as a source of chaos and i've talked about this before in a context of Genesis 1, a different kind of flavor, the Tehom of the deep, and uh, being related to the the uh, Babylonian salt water personification, the dragon. And same thing here. So Yam is the source of chaos and is personified in the Canaanite myth, uh, where Yam is defeated by Baal, the storm god. And so you see uh, the god of Israel taking that place, if you like, so that the writers are picking up on that story and saying, no, no, no. This is a victory of God over, over the sea. And this is very much captured in Psalm 89 where we read, You rule over the surging sea when its waves mount up, you still them. And so it's the same thing being picked up here. And if you read a little bit more closely and look at the, uh, the significance of words, you see the sea is spoken about in very, a very evocative fashion. And... Whether or not you want to make it pure symbolism in all the cases that happens is that what we would call the inanimate creation is, is often personified, uh, de-deified, de-mythologized in the Hebrew Bible, but with hints of the older stories behind them. So the waters roar and foam, the mountains tremble uh, with tumult, tumultuously, but it also means pride. And so there's a real sense in which the the proud sea, the proud yam, is is shaking the mountains, and it's pride and arrogance. And you get that sense too. Uh, it's the, not the same word, I don't think, but the same intent in Psalm 104, which has very close parallels with both Genesis 1, but also the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian Babylonian creation story. So there's all these resonances going on. And then you turn to verses 4 to 6. There is a river whose stream makes uh, make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it when the morning dawns. The nations are in an uproar. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. And there's a bunch of things uh, that have echoes with other parts of the Hebrew Bible and also within the passage. So in Ezekiel 47, it talks about a river out of the temple. Now, the great drama in Ezekiel of the departing of the Shekinah, the presence of God, the Spirit, if you like, the I guess the preempting of our understanding of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And so the temple is just an empty building without that presence. But with present, uh, the presence of God in the temple, uh, there's a river of abundance. And Ezekiel 47 talks about it, even being able to make the Dead Sea fresh water. Now there are trees that grow either side um, and they're always bearing fruit, different fruit each month. 
and it's described as for feeding and for healing, so bringing healing to the people of God. And that all, as I said, flows out, and you can see this in the psalm, that God is in the midst of the city, the holy habitation. So there's a direct identification with the tabernacle and the city itself. So you have these, if you like, layers of holiness, as you see described in Leviticus 2, in terms of the tabernacle. So there's a strong sense of the presence of God, but also too, um, with a focus on the river, echoes of Eden. But again, when you compare now what's very clearly um, an account of a military campaign, so for example, God will help it, that is the city, when the morning dawns, and I'm, I'm taking it that that's the best time to attack a city with the, the rising sun at your back. Uh, and the, there's these, um, these nations that are in an uproar is that the language invoked in this very clearly military kind of setting relates directly back to the start of the psalm, which is all in creation language or creation and flood language. We read, uh, and and so this is, in fact, this is always done in the Hebrew Bible in a time of national emergency. We might call it apocalyptic language. It's, it, that would be a, a fair a label to put it. At. So got mountains shake in um, verse 2 but the city shall not be moved. Uh, and that's in verse 5. And it's the same Hebrew word. Uh, the city shall not be shaken. The sea, or yam, roars, uh, which we read about in verse 3. And the nations are in an uproar. It's the same word again in the Hebrew. Kingdoms totter, but the city shall not move. And again, it's the same word in the Hebrew. So mountains may very well be shake, shaken by a great flood and the kingdoms will totter because of what God is going to do, but the city of God will not be shaken or will not be moved. And just as the sea, the source of chaos in the ancient Near East, um, roars, so the nations roar against God's uh, chosen people. So this flood type language is used to describe a time of national catastrophe, which is politically or otherwise driven. So Israel gets attacked and we're told it's because of idolatry and international intrigue and um, plotting with other nations. So this very evocative flood-like language, therefore it says to me that it's very dangerous to say the Bible says God will never flood the earth again after the flood of Noah, and therefore we can use that as a blanket denial of climate change. But of course, in in making that statement, you have to put things together in, in terms of, well, how is climate change related to the sorts of things that would be behind a psalm like this? Why would the people of Israel need the encouragement while well, they're under military attack? Why they're under military attack? Well, the way in which that's viewed of in the Hebrew Bible is that the people have misstepped. They've engaged in idolatry. They've engaged in political alliances that God doesn't desire. And so there's a direct relationship between their political situation and the issues of the heart, the national heart, and very often that of the king as well, obviously. Well, always, in fact. Um, so it's not a big step then to say, well, if you can use flood-like, apocalyptic language to describe those things, earth-shattering events, to coin a phrase, then why can't you do that in the present and then therefore turn to those resources in the Bible and say, well, then what can we do with those? And I'm going to finish off briefly 
the rest of the psalm in the second half of the program and then do that hermeneutical work. That is, let's think about how this really is now that we've started to tease it apart. An eco-theological psalm for our reflection now. Well, welcome back to the program. We've been posing the question of whether or not Psalm 46 is right for eco-theological reflection in the present uh, ecological crisis in which we find ourselves best characterised by climate change, I guess. But there, are, obviously, there are other issues, as I've spoken about before, in terms of the Anthropocene and the oh, sorry, the yeah, the Anthropocene and the broader issues that are involved, and then the underlying issues of capitalism and greed and all manner of things. And we've seen that this psalm uses very flood-like, if you like, apocalyptic, earth-shattering language to describe the political situation that Israel faces itself. And the psalm finishes with um, and what we call an inclusion or an inclusio. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come behold the works of the Lord. See what destruction he has brought on the earth. He makes war... Wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. And then repeats, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is a refuge. So verses 7 and 11 are the same bracketing and account of divine victories. Desolation, presumably over cities, and that's language that's used elsewhere. Ending wars and being exalted among the nations. And you've got to remember that the connection between theology or religion and politics was quite clear then. I mean, it's very clear in some ways now. In certain contexts, looking at, for example, the civil religion in the US that was really stirred up um, by the past four years. But if Israel defeats the armies of invading nation, then Israel's God has defeated the God of that invading nation. And so God's name is exalted in that way. And so it, it is at one sense, I guess it's, it almost kind of describes like God is the one who engages in war to end all wars. But the end goal is that God makes wars cease to the end of the earth. The, the end game in the mind of the writers of the Hebrew Bible is that violence would end. And while they may have seen a great day of the Lord with military victories, that of course is taken over in the New Testament by the cross. Um, but it's yeah, an evocative picture once more of of God as a divine warrior, the the um, the Lord of Hosts. In and taking this up, so this phrase, and I don't know if you've sung this in in various contexts. Be still and know that I am God, is not is not quite the verse that we thought it might have been. And and I guess in in this context, it's be still and know that I am God. Uh, who is exalted in the nations because of my military victories and, and the ending of war, ultimately. It's not really for a happy, clappy type song, I guess is what I'm driving at. God is a God of action. So where does all of this sit then in terms of eco-theology? 
So it promises victory on behalf of Israel. This is the psalm in times of war. And so how do you apply that to the dispersed people of God? And it'd be fair to say, and I guess the first shift to make, is that around, around war on the earth. Well, I've already um, touched on this earlier in the program, but the promise of God to be our helper. So again, if you think about the helper in the garden, so you have Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, and there's a partnership there. Now the goal, the goal to which human beings were created was to uh, serve the earth. And in, in, in almost in a kind of tension in a way that then uh, zooms in on uh, serving and keeping the garden. So if, if this is the ultimate case, well then the ultimate helper for us to do the thing that we're meant to do in the first place is God. So there's a, a strong sense then that we need to continue to look to God to fulfill our original human mandate, which is caring for the earth. Now you, you might think, well, that's very, is that an overly ecocentric or non-human creation focused kind of introduction of green type theology, blah, blah, blah. Well, I, I think that, no, <laughs> but there is that very strong sense in Genesis 2 of of serving and keeping the garden, but you can draw the larger picture that given gardens were the gardens of kings, often uh, as described in the Hebrew Bible and in ancient Near Eastern texts, that it's divine service. That's the way we, we, we serve God, by um, tending that which God has made. And so we look to God as a helper in that task. So just because climate change imperils the entire globe basically and that we've abused the soil and polluted the waters and driven species to extinction etc etc that's not give up and wait for god to come back and rescue it all in some grand apocalyptic type sense uh, some people's kind of childlike fantasies of what revelation's really on about it, it's more that we have a task in the present yes there is a an in uh, an eschatological inrushing of god there's a, a, a discontinuity but there's also both continuity in one sense and also the simple act of faithfulness and saying well if i'm being remade in the image of god what's the image of god imply or entail and in genesis 2 it's it's the adam from the adama humans from the humus to to care for that humus one of the things that the psalm makes fairly clear early on and you can see it as a comfort to israel in the time of, of military invasion and political intrigue and so on is the statement that we shall not fear. There's a lot to fear in the present time. There's a lot to be anxious about. People, um, youth of today are incredibly anxious. They worry about their future. Um, one person is tapped into this really well, but in a positive sense, of course, is Greta Thunberg. Uh, that's a whole generation who, if, if they're at all awake to this, recognises that the world in which they're growing up in is very different to the one in which I grew up in, in um, the 70s. Even though we were worried about Save the Whales, and I can remember stuff about the Great Barrier Reef, and uh, the Franklin River, and so on. There's always been something, but climate change is all-encompassing. So we have eco-anxiety, uh, people choosing not to have children. So what does it mean not to fear in this context? Well... I think we start need to start by being honest with our fears. And look, as somebody who thinks about this, I probably have spent some time not reading some of the, the more depressing stuff. It doesn't mean that we should hide from it. And okay, I've had a break. Now it's time to pull out those books and read those articles and bring them to you 
and get us to, to navigate those things together. So we need to face our fears, and that's a bit of a, a truism. Um, not slip into denial, as, as a lot of people do as a coping mechanism, and not looking for dr easy answers. Oh, we'll just turn to technology, we'll just do this, we'll do this, do that. We are looking for some enormous changes, and technological ones will be there. Although it must be said that there's a bunch of stuff we could turn to now. Uh, it's not like you necessarily... It may not need a lot of new technology when wind and solar, for example, are well proven and batteries and so on. And, and this perturbations on a theme as they continue to refine those. But the changes in the structure of society may be the most significant. Uh, and it, it's not dualism either. In, in And I've said this many times before in the program that will be that kind of beam me up gaudy idea <laughs> that we escape the physical when we're, we're kind of meant to be saved with it. But it's, it's teleology, it's the purpose of creation of human beings and it's the fact, as I said just before, that God will be continue, continue to be with us to fight. So face our fears and I guess in the end we're not meant to fear as others might. There, there is an end game out of this. It doesn't mean that it won't be preceded by a lot of suffering that we could avoid. I think it validates apocalyptic language, as I said earlier, that the political situation was described in terms of the flood, the release of chaos, but its control by God. But we need, obviously, to be careful with its use. You can bombard people with uh, this earth-shattering language to bring home the magnitude of the events, and people can be overwhelmed. And I don't think it's to the extinguishing of human agency. That's a big focus of the study of my thesis that we have our place and we have our purpose and our calling and we're just meant to get on with it. Yes, prayerfully. Yes, being still and knowing that God is, is God, but getting on with it. As I've noted earlier, also that the, the river out of the tabernacle is taken up in Ezekiel and the return of the presence of God. And this is not really ever obtained in the second temple period. I mean, they looked at the second temple and thought, well, what a... What a joke compared to the first one. But it's, it's carried again, and I've, I've used this word repeated, eschatological end time stuff in Revelation 21. And now the river is not just for the healing of, of Israel, but it's for the healing of the nations. And so that, if you like, is, it is an affirmation, I think, that Christianity is unavoidably political. We've seen so many bad ways in which that's done. But that doesn't mean that we abandon the public sphere. It doesn't mean that we don't agitate. And there are squilling ways in which you can engage in that, from writing to your poly to taking a um, a petition, as organisations like TIER have done. Obviously, your vote, um, and a whole bunch of other things, protesting. They're all political acts. Because we ultimately want to bring healing to the nation. So, um, violent revolution, insurrection... Storming the Capitol building, none of those things are particularly, are at all godly or at all Christian because we want to bring healing to the nations and healing to those places, those political um, spheres. And that's not to be done with violence, the way in which God brings peace is through the cross. Now that said, of course, there is a genuine victory over the empire of Rome or indeed over any empire and the spiritual powers behind it. So the, there, will company, there will be companies that will have to disappear. They'll have to go the way of the dodo, which is probably a metaphor I shouldn't be using, but you get the picture. Uh, companies have been shown continually to lie. Maybe they're newspaper chains, media outlets, 
the mining companies, fossil fuel companies, that is to say, um, these these things need to God needs to exercise victory over them. We need to claim that kind of victory, if you will, and and speak to it. Um, and and as I've said before, this idea that we we engage in war on the earth, and each one of us, so we need to pick a side and decide how we we battle that way. So Revelation eleven eighteen talks about God destroying those who destroy the earth, and that's very much aimed at Rome and empire and a. Uh, an empire that's focused on military conquest and making lots and lots of money, of which you read about that the the merchants of the earth um, made their money off the back of. So, yeah, the way in which we engage in, in economics and the money-making systems and the empire needs to radically shift. And I, I don't think that that means necessarily, although for some it might, totally departing the economic sphere or totally uh, withdrawing but how do we engage with things in a, in a constructive and an imaginative way um, so that we might stop making war against creation and and start being peacemakers with each other and with um, the creation? Being reminded, of course, that verse 9 of the psalm says, He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. And so we should be making war to cease with the earth as well. So it's a matter of seeking shalom or peace for earth and for its creatures, not just peace among the nations. Noting, of course, that one of the biggest polluters in, in the world are the world's militaries. Um, burning of fossil fuels unnecessarily, engaging in all sorts of manoeuvres and so on. And again, I'm not, I'm not being so naive to suggest that we can do away with armies overnight or police forces or, or whatever else, but we need to think incredibly imaginatively. And the fact that so much money is poured into violence and destruction uh, says a lot about the nature of the human human being and the human condition and it's all symptomatic of, of the, the common problems of, of greed and insecurity and violence and just where we put our identity now all of these things well beyond the kind of protectionism from from the evil out there when we need to think about the evil in inside of us and in our institutions and, and so on as well. None of this is simple or straightforward and I'll leave the, the greater wisdom on, on peacemaking to, to mates like Jared McKenna who uh, are braver and more prophetic and, and profound in this regard. But just note that this, this whole idea of peacemaking, as I finish reflecting upon the psalm, stands out really, really strongly in this and and that peacemaking is the introduction of a certain degree of order not a a stullifying suffocating type order but an end to chaos that's characterized by the the sea swallowing the mountains so hopefully that's been useful insofar as it opens up a, a vista of ideas about this psalm and that you can see that it's while the language might appear quote unquote obviously eco theological, once you unpack it, it's not about that in the sense that yes, we can bring those questions to bear, but we need to ask the other questions first about the text, and and those are about again Israel's state at the time the psalm was written, and then once we've done that, we can see that the overarching ideas and concerns in the Hebrew Bible of, of chaos and of order and of peace and ultimately shalom um, can be teased out and applied to things like the Anthropocene. So that's it. 
And uh, once more, thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.